everyone. Welcome to another edition of Living Courageously Exposed, hosted by Big Inside Out Adventures and yours truly, Jennifer J. Saunders, my friends, Tommy J. I'm really excited to have you with us today and to meet our guest, who happens to be from across the pond from Australia. Now, this person, at the young age of 57, competing against people half her age and winning with a can-do attitude. She's a stepmom of three, a grandma of four, one of which just arrived, and a wife of one. And I also just met her guest in the room, Jack the dog. So today I have with me my friend, Carol Cook. And I had the opportunity to talk with Carol a couple of weeks ago, and this lady has quite an awesome story. If you are needing somebody to look up to, or you're just kind of feeling down in the mouth, I believe you're going to gain some really good insights from Carol today. So Carol, we're going to turn the time over to you. But first of all, share a little bit with us and the listeners what you were like as a young kid. Did Were you a dreamer? Were you a troublemaker? Were you a, a wallflower? Tell us about you. Well, I certainly wasn't a wallflower. Um, and I was a little bit of a troublemaker, especially towards <laughs> my sister. Um, I would do things and then put the blame on her. So uh, right up until the age of 24, my mom and dad always thought it was her that was the bad one until that came out. And uh, I guess you could say I was pig-headed and stubborn. I, I was born that way. And I, and I never liked anybody telling me that I couldn't do something. You know, it was always one of those... It was like putting a red flag up to a bull. Right. For me to say, no, you can't do that. It was like, well, yes, I'm going to. Right. And me, knowing your story, I'm going to say that is probably a really positive trait. <laughs> oh, in, in for me, story. definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. definitely got me through some of the bad times. And I guess I'm still pig-headed and stubborn and still, you know, telling people, don't ever tell me I can't do that. Right. Oh, you guys, can you hear that? That determination in her voice of don't ever tell me I can't do that. She's got a great story. So let's just kind of move into that, Carol. Tell us about you as as an athlete. When did that start? What did you do? What were some of your accomplishments? Yeah, look, it was, um, I guess, you know, as a little girl watching the Olympics, you get really excited. And I guess seven was the earliest I can remember watching the Olympics. And I was into gymnastics. My mom had us in dance and gymnastics and all that kind of thing, you know, as little girls. And um, I always swore I would represent Canada as an Olympic gymnast. And now if you saw my body shape, you would realize that, no, I was never going to be an Olympic gymnast. But I didn't know that. At the age of nine, I tried out for an elite gymnastics club. And a really, really mean lady told me I was too fat for sport. Oh. And, you know, my best friend went with me and she got in and I didn't. And I went home in tears. And I'm lucky that I have a mom who taught me to think outside the square. And she said, look, if you want to do gymnastics, then keep doing it because you love doing it. But if you want to go to the Olympics, why don't you try a different sport? Which was to me like, oh, <laughs> never thought of that. Um, right. So I started swimming at the age of 10 and... I guess you could say I took to it like a fish in water. Um, and I guess by the age of, and, I, and really my competitiveness came out when I think my first race ever was a 50 meters freestyle and I came fifth and they'd been giving ribbons right down to sixth place. 
and my ribbon was green ah. and the first place ribbon was red okay. and I was none too happy about the green ribbon. I wanted the red one. It, right. didn't, it wasn't about the placing. I just wanted that red ribbon. And so I guess that's where my competitiveness came out. Like, what do I have to do to get the red ribbon? Exactly. And uh, I guess by the age of 15, I was training almost five hours a day, you know, with dry land training and two sessions in the water a day, about six days a week. Wow. And so my, my goal was, you know, in my head was the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. And, uh, of course, as we all know, Canada and the U.S. and most of the Western world boycotted those Olympic Games. So right. Now, would you remind the listeners why those games were boycotted? Well, it was the invasion of Afghanistan by Russia, funny enough. And, you know, you look at history now and you, you just kind of laugh and go, wow, how tables have turned. Right. Um, and yeah, so they, they protested. The U.S. were the ones that um, got everybody going and, and protested the fact that Russia had invaded Afghanistan. And, and yeah, so just said they weren't sending their athletes. Yeah. And being Canadian, we followed in the U.S. footsteps. In actual fact, there were only two countries, Western countries, that was the UK and Australia, who actually let their athletes make that decision because they said yeah. we shouldn't be about politics, which is so true. Right. The Olympic movement shouldn't be about politics. It should just be about sport. So, uh, yeah, so that was great for those two countries, but not so great for the rest of us. As I say you had trained hard. You're looking forward to this. How, how does one take that, like, now, now what? Well, exactly. Now what? Back then, I was about 18 at the time. And really, back then, if you hadn't made it as a swimmer by that age, because they were all so young breaking world records, you were pretty much washed up. But as we know now, the older a woman gets, you know, into her 20s and early 30s, um, the stronger she gets. In fact... One of your own U.S. swimmers, Dara Torres, at the age of 42, won silver in Beijing. So, you know, it just goes to show that it's just a number. Age is just a number. And um, so it was at 18, like, my God, what do I do? I'm just just finished high school. I'd been accepted to university. Really wasn't interested. I'd had enough of school at that point. And... um, so I did what every good girl does, followed in her parents' footsteps and joined the Toronto Police Force. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't know that all good girls do that. <laughs> uh, it was a family, uh, I guess you could say it was a family business. Yes. Uh, my dad, my mom, my grandfather, a great uncle, two cousins. And I thought, oh, well, might as well do the same thing. Right. Um, right. I haven't thought about anything else except training for the Olympics and going there and this is Just, right here before me. Yeah, yeah. Might as well. Might as well get a job. It was. It was all about. I didn't want to go to university, so I'll get a job. Right. You know, get a job, work for a couple of years, and maybe go back to university. Um, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't uh, something I thought would be. You know, a career, which right. turned out to be a fourteen-year career. And, uh, yeah, I kept swimming. I, I, you know, I love swimming. So I just kept swimming with the local club and, uh, just thought, well, you know, um, I, I still had this dream. I still had this dream of representing my country, you know, right. and 
Well, luckily enough, in 1985, the very first World Police and Fire Games were held in California, San Jose, California. And so I went and represented my force and my country as a swimmer at those very first games. Oh, that's really cool. Now, that's a part of your story I didn't know. That's awesome. <laughs> we forgot to talk about that before. <laughs> yes, we got carried away with everything else. Yeah, so that was like, wow, I finally, you know, I'm on the world stage. And it was great. But at those games, I met a bunch of Australian firemen and their wives. Right. And that's, you know, where my story took a real big shift and turn. So, so do you feel like that being able to represent your country in those games satisfied this this urge or this need inside you, or did it just kind of spark the fire? Well, uh, it was satisfying. It was okay. very satisfying because they had the games every two years. So from 85 onwards, I, you know, I went every two years. But I guess there was always something that, you know, I'd go back and say, but what if? Mm-hmm. What if they had never, and you obviously can't go back in time. And I've, I've obviously learned that a lot in the last 20 years, but you can't, I now know you can't ask what if you just keep evolving and ro- rolling with whatever happens, right. you know, but there was always that, Oh, what if, what if, what if, but I've got this that I can do, you know? So it was, it was kind of a, well, I'll have to settle for this. So, okay. Not that that spark ever went because it was always there every two years. Right. Right. I was going to say that that's settling. When we settle for something, that yeah. in my mind, and I'm like, that still means that that thing is still there, just waiting for the moment. Did you yeah. have that that feeling? Yeah. Well, you hope so. But <laughs> I mean, you do you do get to the point where you realize, okay, you know, like you see what swimmers are doing at that point in time, and you think. I'm never going to get there. Like, I'm not going to be that fast. And the explosion of, you know, the the fast suits and all the technology and stuff, you know, just went over the top. So you have to settle. You have to settle for what what you can get to and just do the best that you can do when you're there. So to me, that was the World Police and Fire Games. Okay. So you said that you met a lot of Australian firemen, and women and their and their spouses what did that what did that do for you well funny enough australia has always been a country that i wanted to visit and all of a sudden i'm meeting all these aussies and i had met one couple who were just young a bit younger than my parents and they had given me a business card with their address and phone number and i think they'd given it to probably 3000 other people and while well, they were there and they were telling everybody, if you ever want to come to Australia, come and visit, you know, right. um, we've got a bed for you. So six months later, I booked a flight and I called them and I said, I'm coming to visit. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> they, um, I couldn't remember what they looked like. I just knew I had this business card that said, come and visit. So they couldn't remember who the hell I was either right. because they'd given it out to so many people. Um, and that was, so in 1986, I started coming down to Australia and it was when, uh, my love affair with this country just evolved and Aww. they became like second parents to me. Um, they came to Canada, my, my mom and dad came down to Australia mm-hmm. and it just, we became one big 
big family, really. And uh, I had friends come down to Australia to stay with them. And, you know, guys, a guy I knew from the police force, him and his wife and his daughter were traveling around and they stayed for Christmas one year. It was just, you know, it was just amazing. So it was just a big family, all stemming from those games. So it was. I find that such a beautiful part of some of the things that we do when, when we meet strangers in these situations that are highly emotional, can be highly competitive, and, and there's this common thread. And we start handing out cards or our numbers and whatever and not really sure whatever will come of it, but knowing that, hey, I have this thing. I think I'll actually make that call. And then just they've, like, you, like you just shared, amazing yeah. stories and relationships that can come out of that stuff is and, and oh, fabulous I love it. you know i mean they've they've unfortunately split up but Margot is still my aussie mom right. you know she's moved up to country victoria but in fact in two weeks i'm i'm heading up that way and you know my girlfriend and i are going to do a, a ride so we're stopped there on the way to sydney and then stop back on the way back you know just for the night so the, those connections are still there. And funny enough, I think I was the only one who took them up on their offer. So. I was going to say, it makes you wonder how many people actually have, because I think it takes some courage to actually take people up on those offers like that. So I say kudos to you. When somebody says, come and stay, you know, right? like, I'm not going to say no. And funny enough, I, um, you know, a few years later, I guess it was 1992, I was, I was feeling a bit jaded on the, on the force and I didn't know if I wanted to keep doing that job. So I applied for a leave of absence for a year and I actually went to Australia for a year and made their house my home base. And in fact, John, the, the male partner of the, the two, he, he gave me an, an old 76 Ford Falcon car and I drove 37,500 kilometers in that car around, around Australia. Wow. And kept coming back to them, you know, in, in that year. And it was towards the end of that year that I met my husband. One time I was back in Melbourne. So Wow. And so yeah. is, is your husband thing that ultimately kept you in Australia? Well, I actually came home because I ran out of money. And I, still, <laughs> I had a job that I had to go back to, you know, right. and, and, and decide. And, of course, Russ then had to propose. Um, there is always... Yes. Yeah. And um, so I guess we traveled back and forth. It was before the internet. It was before Skype or Zoom or anything. FaceTime, no such thing as FaceTime. Um, You know, so uh, I got letters, handwritten letters from him almost daily. Like it was just amazing. Like he would just sit and write every day what he'd done and he'd post it, you know. Phone calls were so expensive. You know, I'd spend about $400 a month on phone calls. Right. Um, and then I came down. We kept coming back and forth. He came to Canada and I came back to Australia. And uh, he finally, finally proposed. I'm like, oh, thank God. This yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. And that was probably about eight months after I'd, you know, gone home. Gotcha. Uh, so then, yeah, that was when I just went. Yep, I'm I'm done. I'm done with the force and put in my resignation. And yeah, um, I just celebrated. I, I came down here August 31st, 1994. So I've just celebrated, you know, 24 years um, wow. of being. So I always say it's a man that that stole me from that. That's right. Stole, yeah. stole my heart away. So now you're in Australia. 
where what happens to your now athletic aspirations? Oh, look, what a, uh, I live in Melbourne. So what an amazing place to live in. It's a sports capital of Australia. Wow. Um, you know, there are 50 meter pools everywhere. There is no such thing really as a 25 meter pool anymore here. So I joined a local master's club. Um, my, I met my husband at a Aussie rules football club. So I decided he was the team manager. So I decided if I wanted to see him between February and October, I better do something at the club. So <laughs> I ended up as head trainer at the club. So I was running around on the field with the guys, you know, right. twice during training and all day Saturday during games, looking after injuries. So this, the trainer just makes sure they've got water, um, you know, oranges or something at, at halftime and right. or the quarter. And, um, and looking after all the injuries that happen. I don't know if you've ever watched Aussie Rules football, but there it's like it's like playing football without padding, but it's so, nuts. So like um, rugby? Is it similar to rugby? Similar, but faster moving. Okay. It's a fast moving game. There's no stop and start. It just goes. Okay. You know, I'm, gonna have, I'm sure I can like... Uh, yeah, you have to Google it and watch it. Just, okay. When the first game I ever watched, I thought this is how they keep the population down in Australia. <laughs> and we now have a women's league, so you know a paid women's league, so it's right. fabulous. Wow! Yeah, it was you know football and swimming. That was, okay. that was my life. Awesome. And so where 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 from there? You're you're the head trainer. You I know that you and I talked about more swimming. Did you did you compete? with swimming yes I a lot a lot of the I did a lot of master swimming but also what is there's a lot of here in Australia obviously is open water swimming so ocean ocean races and so doing quite a bit of that absolutely loved it you know it was something new for me and that was that was fabulous and yeah I guess that was you know I had a job I was just we bought a house you know, you did all that. We, I actually got married in Canada, so I'd come back in, in 95 um, to get married in Canada. And, yeah, life was, you know, you're just starting to build a life, build a career. Um, I got a job with Australia Post um, just as a driver delivering parcels and worked, worked my way up the corporate ladder um, into management position. You know, at one point, I was um, head of human resources for all of Southern transport. So all the big trucks and, and stuff. And I think my policing background stood me in good stead dealing with truck drivers. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, then I was, I was in Hobart uh, we had our master's nationals and it was really hot. Now Hobart doesn't usually get very hot because it's so far South and close, you know, the Antarctic. Um, but it was like 40 Fahrenheit. So that would be well over hundred degrees. Uh, sorry, 40 Celsius, well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Gotcha. And um, there was no air conditioning in the pool. So it was stifling. And even though I felt like I was really fit for these nationals, I was swimming like a rock. Mm. And I, I, you know, I was really lethargic. I thought, oh, I must, I must have the flu coming on. And when I got home, I literally crashed. Like I was in bed. I couldn't get out of bed. It was just, I was just really tired. And right. Now, how was, old were you at this, at this point? I was 36. Okay. 36. So you're still really young. Oh, God, yeah. Still in that, you know, building your life phase, basically. Right. Okay. Um, and especially nowadays, when you think of 36, 
God, I mean, I think 60 is the new 40 now. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was it was um, really unusual. And then my balance went, and I couldn't I couldn't walk down the hallway straight. I'd bang off walls. Um, I looked drunk. I actually looked like I was drunk. I'd try and walk the dog, and I'd fall down, um, and you know have head spins like being seasick you know like vertigo somebody dangling off who doesn't like heights dangling off the top of a tower Um, and then the worst part was my eyesight started to go so I started getting double vision um I it felt like my eyes were shaking side to side I couldn't I couldn't concentrate I couldn't focus on anything and uh the doctor thought originally I had an inner ear infection which made sense and because of the balance and stuff and the fact that I was a swimmer. So then I went to an optometrist to get my eyes checked. And she was amazing because she had just got out of school, out of university. She just graduated. And I told her that the doctor thought I had an inner ear infection. And she said, well, maybe it's, I failed all the tests that she had done. And maybe the, the infection spread to the optic nerve. Can I have your doctor's name and phone number? I gave it to her, not thinking anything. And the first thing she said to my GP was, have her tested for MS because she's got optic neuritis. And optic neuritis is a precursor. So I'm hearing this is possibly a huge turning point in your story. Yeah, quite possibly. Because my GP, he said to me, he said, well, we'll find find a neurologist to send you to. He says, because this isn't something I would have even thought about, you know, like, you're a swimmer. It, it makes sense that, you know, your balance is off. Makes sense. But he said, you know, so we did, we found, we found a neurologist cause he couldn't do anything about it. He was like, okay. you know, he, he learned 20 minutes of every disease known to mankind. Right. That's about it. Yeah. So we found this neurologist who then sent me for an MRI to check out the brain and I can at least say now I have a picture of my brain. So I actually have, I can have, you know, it's there. (laughs) But when I went to go back to get the results, all my symptoms were gone. So I was thinking I'm wasting his time. Like there's nothing wrong. You know, um, Jeff, my GP was, obviously right it was just an inner ear infection it's cleared up you know because we've been trying all kinds of stuff and um it's i'm fine i'm back driving i'm back to work and so i told my husband not to come with me and i went to this this doctor and he was about 70 years old and i reckon he should have retired about 10 years before but he was in a hurry and he was really gruff with me and he's like hurry up come in here and sit down sit down and I thought, well, this is good because I'm wasting this time. Right. right. Yeah. And he pulled out the MRI film and he held it to the ceiling. And he's looking at it, at, you know, the ceiling light. And he says, well, there's too many lesions on your brain for someone your age. So, you know, you've got multiple sclerosis and basically your life as you know, it's over. So, well, like you're, you're 36. Yeah. Yeah. How? how- like, what do you do when you hear that news? Like, that's... What do you do? I mean, he said, go home and put your affairs in order before you become incapacitated. And it was like, it was like being hit by a bus. And I was sitting in this chair and I said one word. I said, what? And, and that's all I said. I was just, I was trying to commute, compute in my head 
this non-information he'd given me, just that I think the one thing that stood out in my brain was you're going to be incapacitated. And that's the only thing I could think about. And what did that mean? You know, we we always tend to go to the worst case scenario that you can possibly think about. Right. And, and did you do that? Did you go to yeah. the worst case? Oh my God. Incapacitated. I'm thinking incapacitated. That means I'm going to like be sitting in a wheelchair wearing nappies and, you know, diapers and drooling and not be able to feed myself. And I won't be able to be incapacitated. It's like being tied down, like not being able to do anything. Right. And um, when I said that word, what, he kind of got angry and he said, Oh God, you heard what I said. You've got MS. Now, look, you're going to have to quit work and you're not going to be able to do this silly sports stuff you do. And you'll have to go on a whole bunch of drugs, but you'll have to go back to your GP for it because I don't have time for you as a patient. I've got enough MS patients already to do. Wow. And, you're, and you have no one with you at this point because you no. felt like you were okay. Yeah, yeah, everything was fine. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and like what – I feel like my world would be spinning. and It was, and I, it was – it was like I just sat there. I didn't know what to say. I I didn't have any thoughts. I didn't I, that incapacitated word. And then when he said no, yeah, you won't do this silly sports stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, there's my whole life gone. Like just right there, incapacitated, no sport. That's everything. You know, th- my whole life's gone. And and I was just sitting there and not saying anything. And I'm sure my chin must have been on the ground. And he put the film back in the envelope and he walked to the door and he said, hurry up. I've got people waiting. Oh, that was my word. So he said, go back to your own GP. And I, I remember, I remember standing up and everything seemed really slow motion. Right. And as I walked to the door, he slammed the envelope into my chest and, and then had the audacity to say, see my secretary on the way out. And I'm like, see her for what? A bill. Oh, oh my yeah. word. <laughs> well, he was his his rooms were in this really old Victorian house, beautiful house. And I remember walking down the hallway and it was the longest hallway in the world. It just seemed to go on forever. And I walked straight past the secretary's office because I was just in I think I was just in another fog, like I was just in another world and I walked straight to the front door and I remember as I grabbed the handle to go out, I remember hearing his secretary's voice yelling at me down the hall, Mrs. Cook, Mrs. Cook, your bill. Right. And I just, I walked straight out the door. I, I, yeah. I can't, that's like the last thing you would even. Exactly. And to be honest, I don't even remember if I ever got the bill from him. <laughs> like I, I just, that the next, the next 30 minutes um, are a complete blur. Um, I don't remember driving home. Yes. Um, I remember being at home and thank God for dogs because it was the pup, my puppy at the time, not the one I have now, but the, my puppy had put her head on my lap and started to whimper and that yes. snapped me out of that fog. And then it was all about her and it's okay. It's okay. You know, we'll be fine. But you then make decisions based on hearing something traumatic, which I've now learned you never do. And, you know, really that drive home, if, if I hadn't been born pigheaded and stubborn and actually I was gonna say, where did your pigheadedness come back in? Right. That, well, not quite then it was after my husband got home, but if, if I hadn't been born that way, that, 
that could have been the last day of my life. If I'd just gone, right, okay, might as well end this now. Um, if I'd been somebody else, you know, who, who knows what would have happened. But my husband called and said, what did the doctor say? And I said, I don't want to discuss it on the phone, come home, which, is, which was really bad on my part because he had an hour's travel in public transport to get home. So he was well, probably worried and he was concerned. Thinking, and, I'm dying. Like right? he was thinking, oh, my God. But to be honest, I had no information about MS, so I had no idea whether I was dying or not. Right. And I made decisions that when he got home, I said, look, I, I told him what had happened. And I said, I'll give you the house because we've only been in the house just over a year. I said, I'll give you a divorce and I'll just go home to Canada. My family can look after me. Hey, um, you have to excuse the language here. Um, he looked at me and said, oh, you're a fucking idiot. Like a good bush boy. Right. right. And I said, haven't you listened to what the doctor said? And he goes, well, he is too. He said, you know, we don't know anything about this disease. And to be honest, uh, you don't have it, we have it, and we'll deal with it. We'll deal with whatever happens. Okay, if I just heard you correctly, this this beautiful man in your life just said to you, you don't have it, we have it. Mm -hmm. Is that what I just heard you say? So he's yeah. saying, I am here with you, you can't get rid of me. Yeah. We're in yeah. this together. Yeah, exactly. Oh, what a beautiful yeah. gift. Oh, it was. And it was like, okay, you're right, we don't know anything about it. Um, and that's when, yeah, my GP, I think this guy, this neurologist was the same with my GP on the phone because I walked into my GP's office, who is another beautiful man in my life. And I burst into tears and he went, Oh my God. He says, don't you worry about him. And he, he said, you know, he's, he's just not a good doctor. And, um, he said, look, I've called the MS society. I've got a package of information coming to you already. I've got one coming to me. He said, cause I don't know enough about it. And he says, and I hope you don't mind, but I've booked another appointment with you with a different neurologist who's much younger. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, who I then, you know, went and saw and, you know, the ball got rolling type thing. But I guess, you know, when you get a diagnosis like that, you go through after the initial shock and you get time to sit and think, you go through those, it's like stages of grieving. Right. You know, at first you're just like, no, nah, don't believe it. Because my symptoms were gone. I went for months not going, not, nah, this isn't, everybody, this is bull. Like, n nobody knows what they're talking about because there's no symptoms anymore. Right. And then little things happen. So you go, oh, shit. Um, yeah, here's something back again. Okay, maybe they're right. And eventually, you know, you, you, you kind of grieve the fact that, okay, maybe I'm going to have to do things different here. Um, and then you come to this, that acceptance of, right, okay, life will be different, but how different, we don't know. And, and you know, eventually I learned that MS is so unpredictable that you don't know what's going to It's like life. Life's unpredictable. So you can't, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And it's the same thing with MS. You know, you could wake up tomorrow and not be able to get out of bed and walk or, you know anything my, my eyesight could be gone or, right. so but and, it's and like, did you find that a little bit um as you're going through these stages did you find um that a little bit concerning or uh like i would imagine myself feeling really vulnerable to like what is tomorrow going to bring for me oh exactly I, that one thing 
Yeah. And I think that it was funny because my mom flew over, like everybody thought, oh my God, you know, this is the end of the world. And they were all, my husband and my mom were trying to wrap me in cotton wool and put me in a padded room so that <laughs> nothing bad would happen. Right. And it got to the point where they wouldn't even let me do the dishes. They wouldn't, you know, most times I'd say, fine, do them. But it got really bad to the point where they wouldn't let me do anything. Wow. And I finally, I finally blew up. I finally blew up one day and I um, just um, swore at them both, my mom and my husband, and like really badly swore at them and stormed out of the room, out of, out of the house. And I went to a local park and I was there for like two hours sitting on a bench, just so angry at them Right. to go back and say, um, look, I'm sorry that I swore and blew up at you, but you cannot keep me locked away. You cannot not let me do things. But at the same time, I think for me, I then started to do everything. I wanted to do everything in case I couldn't do it tomorrow. So it was that real um, doing way too much. And so I would end up doing way too much and having a relapse, um, you know, pushing myself at work, pushing myself still swimming, um, and then I'd have a relapse. And that, that would happen three times a year, four times a year, um, because it just kept, I, you know, just kept doing way too much. And it was my neurologist who finally said, look, I'm, I'm happy to treat you and keep this going the way it's going. He said, but maybe you should start thinking about you and start thinking that maybe you should back off from work and, you know, start concentrating on your health. Right. And so, that was probably the toughest decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah. So it sounds like it's that like finding what the new normal is for you. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we all define ourselves by what we do in, in our lives and our jobs. Right. And now all of a sudden I was thinking about redefine who you are and find other things to fill that hole. Um, the first hole that the things I found at first were to get myself up and out of that chair. And I'm lucky that I had, you know, rehab doctor who was trying experimental stuff with Botox and, and I had great physios and, and do, using all those things and, you know, trying new things got me out of that chair yeah. and then getting back into exercise, but doing it, um, it slowly and purposefully and not just jumping in and going, I'm going to go swim 10K today, you know, or, right. you know, just building that up slowly got me to where I am today. Well, and I happen to know that today you're doing a whole lot more than walking. And so, yeah, yes. so, so let's, let's jump into that a little bit. Like, what were some of the steps that got you to where you are today, which actually is quite an amazing place to be given the diagnosis of hi, go get your life in order because you're going to be an invalid and just nothing yeah. Life is ending today. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I guess it was 2005. Um, the world masters games, cause I'm swimming the world masters games decided to have para categories for swimming and athletics. So I got classified here as a para swimmer. Um, I went, the games are in Canada. So, um, it was just an excuse to go home for a I'm visit. Like, that was a great, yeah, excuse to go home. But I did really well. I did really well in the swing. And I think I came home with something like five gold and two silver. And the wow. Paralympic Committee heard about me, but didn't know how old I was. So I was 45 at the time. 
and they sent me an email because master's for me starts at 25. So I, I'm, maybe they assumed that I was, you know, 25. So I got an email saying, come to a Paralympic talent search day. And I kind of laughed because that's usually for kids or, you know, teens into early 20s for the future, future right. Paralympics. And um, so I went, oh, okay, but do you know how old I am? And the guy wrote me back and he said, uh, no, but just come anyway. And of course that day, I think it was about 25 years older than the oldest kid there. Wow. And, you know, I went through all this testing with these kids and a couple of weeks later got a letter asking me to take up the sport of para rowing. Rowing, man, I'm used to being in the water, not on top of it. Um, but I found a club who took me on and uh, started rowing. Um, ended up making, after fighting my way through that as well, you know, that old red flag to a bull again. Right. Telling, you know, I had, I had uh, hired people involved with the para, para rowing program through Rowing Australia tell me I'd never be good enough or fit enough to make a national team. Um, the mm -hmm. following year I made the national team cause I thought, yeah, don't tell me I can't so do you're that. Like, just lit my fire. <laughs> exactly. He doesn't realize how much he lit that fire. And so we tried, you know, it was 2008. I made the national team and para rowing was a brand new sport in Beijing. And so I was really excited because all of a sudden this dream I had as a nine year old to go to the Olympics. Okay. Might not have been the Olympics. It was the Paralympics. It might not have been for Canada was for Australia and it might not have been in swimming. It was rowing. And I thought, wow. Well, you know. and I think, I think you make a great point right there is that we have these dreams of what we think they're going to look like and we may get there and it doesn't look exactly like we thought, but we're still there and remembering that we're still there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I was so excited and there was no thought in our minds that we weren't going to make it. And you see, with rowing, qualifications um, for Olympics or Paralympics begins the year before. So at World Championships the year before, they pick a certain number of the top eight or whatever, make it through. But then they have one World Cup that year that you can then qualify three more boats. So we knew that we had to come first or second because the third was, you know, awarded kind of like a, a lucky dip type thing. Right, right. So we knew we had to come first or second and the Chinese were way ahead of everybody. So we knew we had to come second and it was a blanket finish that went to a photo finish oh, wow. and we, we missed by 0.8. Oh. And devastation plus, I must say. But when, you know, we got back to the dock, I couldn't get out of the boat. I'd given so much, my legs were gone. So they lifted me out and they said, well, go get a wheelchair. I said, just leave me here. And I, I honestly cried like a baby because I thought I'm 47 and I, I cannot possibly keep doing this. Anyway, um, my sister set me straight uh, that, well, you, it's not about the destination. It's the journey. And if you enjoy rowing, then just keep rowing. Right. Do what you love. Exactly. And so I did, made the team the following year again, and we came sixth at the World Champs in 2009. And I thought, we're well on our way now for London. Like, we got a taste of this. You know, we've only got three years left. But in 2010, again, another roadblock, Rowing Australia came up and said, we're not interested, basically, in your crew. Um, oh, wow. They were training more on the more disabled crews and uh, dropped us. And I thought, God, so much for that dream again. But one of the girls that I was rowing with, um, she switched to paracycling. 
And she called me and she said, oh, Carol, they've got a trike category. Because I'd lost my balance, I was riding a trike. And right. it's a normal bike, uh, but where the back wheel is, there's an axle with two, two wheels. And uh, I said, really? So this is like 2011. And I'm thinking, wow, there's a trike category. So my first race was national, paracycling nationals here. Never raced. Wait, your first race was the nationals? Nationals, but, yeah. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, did you hear that? Like, lots of us would train after first race. Yeah, <laughs> well, I've been riding. I, I, you know, I was using it as cross training, and I would ride back and forth to rowing and right. ride where I wanted to go. So I just thought, oh, well. But it was in Queensland, um, far north Queensland, in the Glasshouse Mountains. And, uh, yeah, there were some pretty bloody big hills to get up. And I was a bit worried that, yeah, I'd be very embarrassed by walking up those hills. But needless to say, I got up them. Um, I had a great first time trial. And the head coach came to me and he said, oh, my God, where, are they, where did you come from? Right. And I just... Melbourne and he goes no I mean in the cycling world I said no no no, I'm a rower he goes oh my god no you're not you're a cyclist he said you've just smashed the qualifying speed for the national team for your category and I went oh what was that and he just kind of shook his head and he goes I need to talk to your coach and I just paused and I said uh keep talking then because I got a rowing coach I don't have a cycling coach (laughs) and it just started from there oh my word so like this, this part of your story just blows me away. It goes back to the, you know, you call it pigheadedness and determination. I, I call it amazing because I love the courage and the vulnerability you show to continue trying new sports and to sometimes what feels like start as a beginner and to like jump in like this one. You, you rode your bike as a way of cross training for rowing and to get you back and forth. And yet it had you in good enough shape that you could go and do this this time trial race at the at, what do you say the nationals yeah and just holy cow the amount of vulnerability like am i going to be laughed off the off my bicycle am i going to be you know the laughing stock of all this because there's a lot of hills and there's what were all of those emotions for you besides you said you, you were feeling possible embarrassment about the hills getting up them you know walking up them would be hard let alone riding up them and now he's yeah. saying i want you well it was considering coming from rowing who were saying, now we don't want you guys now. And, and the coach from the rowing really had an issue with my age as well. Um, so here I am 50, you know, just trying more about age than it was ability at rowing or they just, no, the ability of the whole, they just didn't want anything to do with the crew. Um, but they were all much younger than me, I must say, but picked on me quite a bit because of my age. Gotcha. So here I am now at 50 at my, you know, almost while well, I was 49 at, the, at nationals, I turned 50 a few months later and somebody saying, Oh yeah, we want you. So it was a real, it was a real roller coaster that, that, you know, couple months of rowing saying, no, we don't want, I kept rowing. Like yeah. I loved it. I just kept rowing as well. But I guess, you know what? I look at it that, we learn about fear and we learn, we won't try as we get older, we won't try new things because we're scared about what people will think of us or that we'll look silly or we won't be any good at it. And you know what? Life is too short not to try things. And you know, maybe if I had never been diagnosed with MS, I wouldn't be out there trying these things. But I guess I saw that as 
um, life throws curveballs at us and, you know, and crap gets thrown at us. It's not what hits us. It's how we deal with how it hits us. And I wasn't going to be scared of trying new things. And look, if I worried about how silly I look, um, I get really stupid asinine comments sometimes out on the road. Um, mostly unfortunately from men who, you know, I've had, I've had men say to me, Hey babe, you know, when are you going to get off the training wheels and get on a real bike? Um, it's just so small minded. Oh, well, exactly. But if you worried about that and I realized that it's really sad that those people are like that. So I'm not going to let that stop me. They don't know me. They don't know who I am. And if they actually tried to ride the trike, they probably wouldn't be able to because they're really hard to ride. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I think when, when I like to tell people, you know, when we're born, we have no fear and we don't have a fear of failing. And when we're learning to walk, we stand up and fall down thousands of times right. and we might cry or we might laugh, but we always get back up. Mm-hmm. And eventually we're not scared of change because we don't know what that fear is. And eventually, not only do we walk, but we run. So we evolve. We don't worry about change. We just evolve. And I guess I, I've just looked at, well, if I can't do one thing, then let's just evolve and do something else. And, and it's, not, it's not about being the best right then and there. It's about just trying something different. And I'm very lucky that, you know, I love riding. I love, it's my social life. Um, you know, I ride with different groups. I, lo- I ride with friends. It's all about having a ride and going for coffee and breakfast afterwards. But I just, I'm lucky enough that I just happen to be pretty good at it. So I do make teams now and I, and I do have wins, you know. So that's just the icing on the cake. Well, and I think part of it too, there's something you said at the very beginning that, that keeps coming to mind as I'm listening to you talk and you're talking about, evolving and um if if one thing's not working to evolve and try either that thing differently or something completely different altogether and you said learning to think outside of the square now in in the states we call it thinking outside the box but i like thinking outside the square (laughs) and and i love that you that you that lesson that you learned as, as a small kid i think you said like age nine or ten that you continue to practice that powerful statement learning to think outside of the square and to see things differently so that you can still do the things that you love and accomplish the dreams that you had as a nine-year-old exactly and look a really good friend of mine who um lost both his legs in a climbing accident um is still climbing mountains he's moved from australia to canada he's ice climbing the whole bit and the one thing that he really resonates with me he says it's not what you see, it's how you see, right? So it's how we see things, not, not what we're looking at, but how we're going to see it. So somebody might look at him and see a guy with no legs right. and think, oh, well, he's, you know, sitting in a chair forever. But it's how, it's how you see it. How, what can he accomplish with no legs? And he's, you know... He did um, 1,600 pull-ups up El Capitano and made it to the top. He tied himself off in the middle of the night to sleep, and then the next day went back went up to the top. So any of your listeners who know El Capitano, like, it's, it's in your own country, and 
you know, it's just this sheer rock face. And so it's not, it's not what we see. It's how we see it. It's not me having MS. It's me living with MS right? and incorporating it um, into my life. And as I said to you before, it's not, it's not, it, MS is not going to define me. And that's, I think when I finally came to that acceptance part of that grieving stage at the beginning, I was, I was bound and determined that MS was not going to define who I was. It was just going to be part of me. And if I had to do things differently to live with it, then that's what I would do. Right. You know? Oh my word. This is so awesome. Okay. So tell you're now into the, the tricycling, the paracycling on your, on your tricycle that I actually would love to try one someday. Because oh, there's cool. heaps of them in the U.S. Tell me yeah. about it. I'm going to have to find myself one. So if any of you out there listening who have access to a, a paracycle, tricycle, if you like, call me. I would love to give this a go. <laughs> have a little more common with, with my friend Carol here. So, Carol, tell us what you're doing now. Um, like, where has the paracycling taken you? What are you currently doing? Do you Are you just playing around with it? Do you have aspirations that you're still I set on what's what's up for you well look it, it was it's been it's been an absolute dream come true I made the Paralympic team in 2012 for London um, I uh, I won a gold medal there in London in the time trial I've gone on to win seven world championship titles and, wow. and uh uh, made the team again in 2016 for Rio. So, you know, I was just excited that I'd made London and thought, yeah, this is a finally, you know, it's taken me, it's taken me 41 years, two countries and three sports, but I finally got there. Okay. And say that again. Three, t- how many years? 41 years. 41 years, three countries. Two countries and three sports. And three or two countries, three sports. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, I finally got there and, um, and then to make the team again. So in London, I had to race the men because there weren't enough women for our own race. Okay. Um, And then in Rio, it was just the women. So I ended up winning both races, the road race and the time trial. So brought home two golds. And I thought, well, that's it. And everybody said, oh, what about Tokyo? And I thought, oh my God, I'll be like 59 in Tokyo. I refused (laughs) to make a decision. I said, no, I'm just going to ride to enjoy it. And if I make the team and, you know, each year and race, I'll take, I'll take it a year at a time. Yeah. But I did make the decision that at the end of this year's international racing, I would make a call on Tokyo. And I can, I can publicly say that, yes, I'm aiming for Tokyo. Okay. Um, I, I have no expectations of myself other than to go and do the best that I can possibly do. And if that, you know, translates to a medal or two, then great. And I guess the last thing that was on my bucket list was the World Cup Series, which I actually won this year. Um, against oh, my word. congratulations. A, thank you. Against an American girl who we were tied on points at the end of six races, and they did a count back um, as to who had won more races, and I had three to her too. So, wow. Um, so that was, you know, to, to finish this year, finally, you know, taking me seven years to win the World Cup Series and to finally do it. So, you know, all my expectations have been met. Um, I will still, I love racing and I love riding. 
So I'll just keep doing it, but I really have no expectations of myself other than to when I'm in a race to go out and do the best that I can. Okay. And, and I love that part about who you are as a person is, you know, all of these things that have come to you. And again, you know, from being in that point, age 36 in the doctor's office, being told basically your life is over to, uh, uh-uh. like, I'm going to go through, through these stages of grief. I'm going to remember this determination that I was born with and an opportunity comes and you take it. Another opportunity comes, you take it. You're rowing, you're swimming, you're rowing, you're now you're cycling and, you know, gold medals, uh, championships, three Olympics. And, a Paralympics. Um, We're very Paralympics. proud. Yes. Paralympics. Very thank, proud. Paralympics. Thank you for correcting me on that. The Paralympics. Like it's for myself. It's so inspiring because I look at, you know, we all get down in the dumps and we have those days where like, oh, I just feel like life is over. And then I then I remember that I have friends and people like you in my life or even just a stranger on the television who I see participating in in a, some kind of para games. And I just I'm like, I have I have nothing. Get out my own determination and start moving forward. And so I really have respect for, again, the vulnerability that you show and in sharing your story with us and the things that you bump up against and that you're continuing to go for your goals. But this is the part I love is that you say, I'm doing it for me. Yeah. Because I've, I've accomplished these things and now I'm just, I'm just continuing to work out and to push and to go enjoy and have the experience. You know, and the day that I don't like racing or I don't want to ride is the day that I will stop, but I will always I will always exercise because that's what's keeping me walking. That is my that is my main goal is to stay on my feet and to stay right. healthy. And I'm probably healthier now than I was, you know, pre-MS. But you know that that first neurologist, he was really right. He said my life as I knew it was over, and it, it was. But he was thinking in a negative way, right. and I like to think in a positive way, and. You know, MS is made, I would never change my diagnosis now. I would never go back in time and say, you know, yep, if I could go back 20 years, I wouldn't be diagnosed because it actually made me who I am. You know, I I would have never been to Paralympic Games. I never would have been to World Champs. I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Uh, I wouldn't have made the friends through rowing and cycling that I have made, even through swimming, you know, as a para swimmer. I swam with a young girl as who was, you know, when I was a parasimmer, who was 15. She's yeah. now switched to cycling. She's now 30. Um, and she's on the team with me. You know, like we're very good friends, but we met through swimming. So wow. it's, I'm hoping that I've been able to instill in people that it's okay to try something new when you're finished at one, one part of your life. Yeah, don't um, feel like things are, that you're washed up and over. Keep no. going. I had to go to school that I was recently speaking to, and she goes, well, you know, a smart-ass little eight-year-old, well, what happens if you can't ride? And I said, well, I just might try archery or something, you right. know? Yeah. <laughs> I might try something different, sitting down. So there's always, there's always things that, you know, we can go and we can try. Um, it, it certainly doesn't stop because you can't do one thing. Right. I like to uh, to tell people, and I, I learned this quite a few years back, I got to teach it over the weekend to 62 teenagers, that there's always another way. Oh, always. always another way. 
Yeah. And I always, I always thought that if I ended up using a wheelchair or walking stick or anything like that, um, that would be giving into MS. In fact, it gives you your independence. So there's always a way to do things. You might just have to do them differently. Like I have hand controls in my car. Um, you know, I use a walking stick outside because if I almost fall, which I tend to do quite often, at least that stops me. You know, I can use that to stop me. So there's, it's not giving in. It's just living with it and, and adapting to it. And it's, it's like anything. If, if one thing doesn't work, adapt it and do something different. Right. And I love when you said, and look back here in, in my notes, where you said, um, it doesn't define you, but you learn how to incorporate it into your life. You're yes. not MS. It just gets to be a part of your experience. I, I love right. that about you. And so, and I really think, uh, me personally, I appreciate you talking about, you know, possible walking aids that people may get to use. Because I actually have a few people in my life at the moment who are getting to experience having a cane or using a walker and um, really struggling with that and, and remembering that it's just another way to do life so that you can continue to do life. It keeps you independent. You know, if I didn't, if I didn't use those tools, I wouldn't be driving my car. Um, so I wouldn't be able to go anywhere. Um, if I didn't, when I had to use the wheelchair, if I didn't use the wheelchair, I would be locked in the house. I wouldn't be, you know, it, it gives you that independence to continue on with your life. doesn't mean that. And I know now if I do end up back in a wheelchair, life's not going to end Been there, done that. And it's just a different way of looking at life, you know, a really different way of looking at it. I love it. Kira, I love what you bring to the world and this view of like there is always another way. And, and no matter what, that you're going to keep finding it. And, and not saying that you're not going to have days where you just feel crappy or like, you know, you want to quit. Because- Everybody's allowed to have days that they feel crappy. And I, and I, you know, and I give myself permission to have those days where I just think, oh, this just sucks. But I make sure that it only lasts that one day. And then you just got to pull yourself up and say, get on with it. You've had your pity party for a day. Now time to move on. Yep. Time to retake care of yourself. And I appreciate you bringing that out because I think that's important. Sometimes when we see... You know, people who are accomplishing things and, and appears they're achieving all their dreams. We forget that, that they're human, too, and that they have oh. their hard things. And so I really appreciate that you say you give yourself permission to have those days when they come. You, you have it, to. Yeah. You experience it like you, like you do anything else, and then you move on. Not everybody's happy all the time, right. you know. <laughs> you have to be able to have a grumpy day once in a while. Yes. <laughs> It's so true. Well, it's like today. I, I actually, when you asked me, you know, how I felt today, I'm like, oh, do I be honest with her? Because today, I, what I tell you, I don't feel very good today. And I contemplated not doing the interview and seeing if we could reschedule it. And I just thought, no, I can still not feel good and, and be able to have a really great conversation with a beautiful soul who has so much to say. And so I gave myself permission to not feel good and have this interview. So yeah, that's good. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you kept the interview time. Yeah. Me too. I, I appreciate you uh, just kind of going with the flow and, and allowing me to feel how I need to feel today. Um, so let's, let's wrap this up a little bit. What, what are five lessons when you speak to people? Because I know that that's one of the things you get to do. And when you share your story, what are five lessons that you've learned from the age of 
I, we're going to use the age of 36 when this big roadblock came into the picture to today when you're preparing for the, the Tokyo Games. Five lessons that you live by that you love to share with other people. Ooh, let's see if I can come up with five. Um, number one is that you have to dare to face your fears and believe in yourself because you can accomplish anything. Um, you have to learn to love the journey, not worry about the destination. You have to just live for today because you could have messed up yesterday. Take what you did wrong and use it as a lesson to not do it again. But you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. So don't worry about it. Just worry about today. Um, take two words out of your vocabulary. Can't. <laughs> they just don't belong in anybody's lives. Don't, like, don't let anybody ever say to you, oh, you'll never be any good at that or you can't do that because you're too old or you're too disabled or you're going to look silly. Don't worry about it. Take both those words out and uh, dream big. big. There's nothing wrong with dreaming as big as you want, but put stepping stones into place so that you've got other little, little goals to achieve on the way to that big dream. You might not, you might never ever get to that big dream, but don't ever let go of that big dream and celebrate those little stepping stones that you make. I think as, as adults, we forget to celebrate. You think about when we're kids and we do something and it's like, yeah, and we're jumping around and we celebrate and we're high-fiving our friends. As adults, when we do something, we just kind of go, that's good. Glad I got there. But we don't celebrate. We don't give ourselves big enough pats on the back. We need to remember to celebrate the things that, that, that we accomplish. And, and don't let anybody say, well, what are you doing that for? Well, because I can, you know, I'm celebrating. I love, love, love that you just brought that out because that's one of the things that I live by as well. Um, learned this quite a few years ago in, in a class where celebrate all wins. So I te- like to tell people, get out there and caw, celebrate everything. And, and if you need somebody to celebrate with, then call me. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Right? And so I'm going to say that to you right now. If you're out there and you need somebody to celebrate with, you can get a hold of me. You can get a hold of Carol, and we will help you just, like, whoop it up and have a party at every little accomplishment. It's not oh, just for one. sure. You can even do it via, you know, FaceTime or Skype or right. Zoom or whatever platform you have. Right. I do it through text messages sometimes. Like, hey, I got this cool thing that just happened. I got to, I got to tell somebody. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so no, I love it. I love this. You do need to celebrate. Yeah, so I'm going to just repeat those really quickly. Dare to face your fears and believe in yourself. Love the journey and don't worry about the destination. Love today. Don't worry about about tomorrow. Love today. Take can't and never out of your vocabulary. Dream big and, and as big as you can. Set the little goals and build a road. And then the last one is to celebrate all wins and all those little stepping stones. Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh, Carol. Those are amazing words to live by. And I still appreciate your story. Any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Um, I think we've covered everything. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like we have lots um, more time and conversations and I look forward to to being able to do that. And uh, I would love to share a stage with you sometime and just introduce That would be awesome. Oh, we'll we'll find a way. We'll find a way. So ladies and gentlemen, 
those of you listening today, I hope you've enjoyed Carol Cook and her story of overcoming and being a dreamer and continuing to move forward and always finding another way. As she put it, it took 41 years, two countries, and three sports to accomplish the things that she's wanted. And you can do the same. So if you've loved any part of today's Living Courageously Exposed podcast, I invite you to share it with two people, just two. Help bring the light and spread the word to those who may need a little bit of encouragement or just another fun story in their lives. So if you've liked any part, share with two people. You also can donate. Help us keep bringing you amazing content. And like we always say, you must believe in yourself or no one else 